Egla Arufa by Rav Yonatan Grossman Translation by Rav Yosef Bloch In last week's parasha, Parashat Re'eh, we saw the beginning of the mitzvah unit of the book of Dvarim. In our parasha, Parashat Shoftim, this unit continues, but with an important distinction. While in Parashat Re'eh, the focus is on the individual person and the commandments related to that individual's life, from diet to the annual calendar of holidays, our parasha deals with public life, the communal and national symbols of authority, judges, kings, priests, prophets, and the military. At the end of the parasha, we read a bizarre passage which is almost unique among all the commandments in the Torah, the paragraph of the Egla Arufa, the calf whose neck is broken in order to atone for an unsolved murder. In particular, let us focus on the fact that this animal is offered outside of the holy precincts. We are accustomed from other sources in the Torah to the idea that the blood of a slaughtered animal has the power to atone and to purify. In this respect, it is unsurprising that here as well, after an abominable act of murder, the slaughtering of a young calf is associated with the expiation of guilt. God, forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not charge your people with the guilt of murdering an innocent person. Then they will be absolved of the guilt of this person's blood. However, in opposition to the accepted custom, according to which the animal must be brought to the place chosen by God, where it is slaughtered and its blood is sprinkled upon the altar, the rite described in our parasha dictates going to a place which is not sacred at all, that town's elders must lead it down to a mighty ravine, neither plowed nor planted. There in the ravine, they must break the calf's neck. This is extremely perplexing, as the Torah devotes an entire passage to the prohibition of bringing offerings outside of the holy precincts. The presumption there is that a religious rite performed outside of the camp may, God forbid, lead to pagan rituals of worship. Why, when a murder victim is discovered, is a calf taken to the ravine, where it is slaughtered by having its neck broken? As we noted above, this phenomenon is almost unique. There are two other mitzvot which seem to echo this extraterritorial service, offering outside the courtyard. The first of them is the scapegoat, the goat sent to Azazel, to the wilderness, as part of the Yom Kippur service. And the second is the para aduma, the red heifer which is burnt outside the camp and whose ashes are used to purify those who have come in contact with dead people. These two animals respectively serve the aims of atonement and purification. And concerning each of these two mitzvot, the service must be performed outside the holy precincts. The Ramban indicates this by writing, In my view, its reason is akin to that of the offerings brought outside, the scapegoat and the red heifer. This is not the forum for a lengthy analysis of these mitzvot, but let us be clear that the scapegoat does not atone in the regular manner. The eponymous atonement of Yom Kippur is accomplished by the other offerings of a day, those brought on behalf of the priests and the people. The scapegoat, on the other hand, helps in this regard by carrying the sins of the Israelites upon its back, taking this burden out of the camp to an isolated, distant site.
the raison d'etre of the scapegoat is to be sent out to the wilderness, far from the epicenter of holiness, and to vanish forever. Thus, it does not bear relevance for our passage, in which the death of the animal is the focus of the rite. However, the second mitzvah, that of the para aduma, does appear to be closely linked to our topic, not only because of the mere fact that the service is performed outside of the temple, but because they are characterized very similarly. Let us consider the selection criteria of each. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer, a perfect animal that has no defects and has never borne a yoke. And that town's elders must select from a herd a calf that has never been worked and has never pulled with a yoke. Indeed, the sages expound a textual analogy between these two mitzvot, which begs the following question, Is there an intrinsic link between the law of the para'aduma and the law of the egla'arufa? Immediately we may note that both involve an encounter with death. The egla'arufa atones in a case of murder, while the para'aduma purifies one who has come in contact with a corpse. We will return to this presently. At this point, it is worth noting that the verse is aware of the problematic nature of killing an animal outside the holy precincts, and therefore it seeks to create a distinction between the animals offered on the altar and this calf. The accustomed terms for killing an animal in a religious rite are sacrificing, zvicha, and slaughtering, shechita, which are used throughout Vayikra considering all sorts of offerings. However, our verse does not use this term, which would be reminiscent of the sacrificial term, instead calling it ha'egla ha'arufa, there is no zvicha or shechita here, so that we cannot confuse it with a religious rite of slaughter outside the holy precincts. Instead, there is arifa, decollation, breaking the animal's neck. Arifa does show up in one other context in the Torah, the firstborn donkey. Firstborns are considered holy, dedicated to God. This applies in principle to the first male offspring of every womb, human or animal. For a kosher domesticated animal, this holiness is literal and inviolable. The animal must be offered on the altar. However, the human firstborn is redeemed by his parents with silver, and the firstborn donkey, which is a non-kosher animal, is redeemed with a lamb or kid. Nevertheless, if one declines to redeem the latter, there is an alternative, breaking the firstborn donkey's neck. Thus, Every firstborn domesticated animal requires a killing. Offering the kosher animals on the altar in a religious service, or decollating the donkey without ceremony, as it is forbidden to benefit from it. In order to distinguish between these two killings, the Torah uses different terms in Shemot. This is why I sacrifice to God the first male offspring of every womb, is the declaration for kosher livestock, while the command concerning the donkey is, Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Zvicha stands in opposition to Arifa. These are the only two situations in which the Torah mandates Arifa, and it seems to me that in both one must pay attention to the Torah's emphasis. This is not sacrificial shechita or zvicha. This is the lethal act of Arifa, though it too is done by God's command. Indeed, 
Halachic Midrash differentiates between the two types in terms of the tools. One must break its neck with a hatchet. So why is Arifa what we are required to do to this Egla, and why is it done outside the holy precincts? In Moreh Hanvuchim, the Rambam writes, As a rule, the investigation, the procession of the elders, the measuring and the taking of the calf make people talk about it, and by making the event public, the murderer may be found out, and he who knows of him or has heard of him or has discovered him by any means will now name the person that is the murderer. This is a very interesting approach, which shows why the decollation takes place outside. But the problem with this approach, as with others among the Rambam's justifications of mitzvot, is that it is not an intrinsic explanation. By the same token, the town elders might scream at the top of their lungs or declaim psalms. This would also publicize the matter. Indeed, the Ramban here asks that precise question. We must ask the following question. Why does Arifa atone, and what does it atone for out in the countryside? In order to answer this question, we must first look at the location for killing the animal. That town's elders must lead it down to a mighty ravine, Nachal Etan, neither plowed nor planted. There in the ravine, they must break the calf's neck. The term seems straightforward. We are speaking of a Nachal, which is Etan, and the definition of Etan is neither plowed nor planted. This is how many commentators explain this. Note that the Rambam in Hilchot Rotzeach understands Nachal Etan to be a swiftly flowing stream. The Chizkuni here concurs. Now, according to Rashi, neither plowed nor planted is a description of the Nachal. However, the Ramban argues that this is a command. It is forbidden to plow or plant in this ravine from this point forward. In either case, it is clear that the desolation of this ravine symbolizes atonement for the murder which has occurred. What connection is there between the ravine and the act of murder? It appears that this relates to the concept of unrealized potential, the waste of something which could have lived and flourished. Just as this nachal is barren, so the victim has been cut down in an untimely, unproductive manner. This is what the Talmud says. Rabbi Yochanan ben Shaul says, Why does the Torah mention that he should bring a calf into a ravine? The Holy One, blessed be he, said, Let something which did not produce fruit have its neck broken in a place which is not fertile, and atone for one who is not allowed to produce fruit. This also helps us understand the connection between Egla Arufa and Para Aduma. The link between them is the encounter with death, which requires atonement at times and purification at others. However, as we said, the connection springs essentially from the description of the animal which the people must take, one that has never borne a yoke, or has never pulled with a yoke. This is also a case of unrealized potential. Domesticated animals are born and bred for work, but before its owners have a chance to work this animal, it is taken and killed. In order to atone for such a case of murder, or in order to purify oneself after a brush with human mortality, the Jew underlines the meaning of life and its termination, the end of fruitfulness, and the cessation of creativity. This may indicate a direction to lead us to understanding what links para aduma and egla rufa, both of which must be at the stage of life before work. Still, 
our other question remains. Why is the Arifa outside of the holy precincts? Before we answer this, let us turn to an interesting Talmudic discussion. The anti-penultimate verse in our passage dictates the script for the town elders. Our hands did not shed this person's blood, nor did we see it happen. The Mishnah questions this. Can it enter our mind that the court elders are shedders of blood? The answer is recorded in two distinct versions, that of the Talmud Bavli and that of the Talmud Yerushalmi. In the Bavli, rather it means he did not come into our hands only to be dismissed without food, nor did we see him and let him go without escort. And in the Yerushalmi, rather it means he did not come into our hands only to be dismissed, nor did we see him and let him go. The Bavli presents its version based on a Brita. According to this, the elders refer to the victim. They did not require this man to wander in danger outside of the security of their town. They took care of him. Alternatively, they never met him. And therefore, they cannot be held accountable now for the tragedy of his death. The Yerushalmi has a different version. There is no mention of escort or food, and it appears that this sentence refers to the murderer. The elders are testifying that they did not release the perpetrator rather than bring him to justice. Thus, the town elders may, as a public body, represent either the jurisprudential perspective in the Yerushalmi or the socioeconomic perspective in the Bavli. Regardless, it appears that the town elders have an additional status which is tied closely to the aim of atonement for the shed blood. The elders are the representatives of the populace, and at the time that the elders confess, they are apparently responding to a metaphorical impeachment. The entire town which they represent is being indicted. Why does it have to be the town which is nearest to the corpse, which requires atonement? Why is it indicted for a crime outside its limits? In two of our previous lessons, those for Parashat Achremot and Parashat Masay, we have seen the unique defilement of the land which is caused by the shedding of innocent blood. There is not only a moral problem of murder, there is also a theological metaphysical problem of the impurity of the land. In this context, we are not dealing with moral or legal culpability, but the negative outcome of the defilement of the holy land. Without question, the temple has unique sanctity, and therefore one who encounters death may not enter the holy precincts due to his or her personal defilement. But in an unusual case of murder, the ground itself is defiled, and the land in its entirety will vomit out its residence if atonement will not be made for it. Generally, one atones for the land, which swallowed the blood of the victim, by the blood of the one who shed it. However, our passage tackles a particularly thorny problem, as it is unknown who struck him down. There is no particular indictment of a specific person or community, because the murderer has not yet been discovered. But still, the environment of the settlement closest to the place of the murder is impacted by the very shedding of blood in its midst. For the sake of atonement, namely purifying the land and those who reside upon it, the representatives of the nearest locality must take a calf and break its neck in a mighty ravine. Now we may understand why killing the calf is not done by Shechita in the holy precincts, but by Arifa in the Nachal Eitan, close to the murder site, outside the town limits, as it is written, that town's elders must lead it down to a mighty ravine. 
the area itself has been defiled, and the inhabitants of the nearest town are in spiritual peril. It is specifically this place and its residents which require atonement, and therefore the calf is to have its neck broken outside of the holy precincts, in a place which is both close to the murder site, outside the holy precincts, close to the town, and indicative of the end of life, the barren ravine. In this manner, the Torah guarantees, and you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood by doing what is right in the eyes of God.